Hey, it's Guy here. So each of us every day experiences the world through our senses. But what happens when one of our senses fails us? How does that change our perception of the world? And can technology help us stretch and enhance our senses? This episode is called Extrasensory, and it originally aired in March of 2014. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Guy Raz. And on the show today, extrasensory. Ideas on how technology and even human behavior can actually stretch our senses. What we see, what we say, what we feel, what we hear. And for Neil Harbison, hearing has never been the problem. The problem is seeing. He can see everything. Well, everything except for colors. I don't see the hue and the saturation, which is uh, blue or red or orange. And that's a bit of a problem because Neil is an artist, a painter, actually. And if he looks out to the world in front of him just through his eyes, it's like he's living in a black and white film. So to experience color, Neil uses his ears. I guess, like, what does red sound like? Red is F. How about yellow? Yellow is G. Okay, what does green sound like? It's A. So it goes F is lower than orange, then yellow, then green, then turquoise, blue, and violet is the highest. Wow, that's, that's really cool. Okay, so how Neil does this is almost ingeniously simple. He has help from some very cool technology. And how he came about it, how it works, here's a story. It begins at age 11 in Spain, where Neil grew up. Up until then, I just thought that I was confusing colors because I just learned the names of colors and I learned that the sky was blue and, and the, the grass was green. But when I was 11, I was told that I, I wasn't actually seeing color. I was just memorizing the names of colors. And that moment changed everything he thought about himself and his potential. Well, when I knew that I couldn't see color, I didn't want to wear color either. So I asked my parents to buy colorless clothes, so just white, black, and gray, because I didn't want to wear something that I couldn't see. For many periods, I just hated color, and I just wanted a colorless world. But very quickly, Neil realized that living a colorless life, it's actually impossible to do that. Think about sport. There's color codes in sport. If you think about chemistry, there's importance in the color of the material and Color is also in literature. You find color in every book, every three or four pages, you find the name of a color. Even with things that have nothing to do with color, like yellow pages or Bluetooth or the green card or James Brown. Brown is in the same. So it's it's everywhere. It was like colors all around. It sounds like like almost like a horror movie, like you're running away from colors. Yeah, I tried, actually. I, I just thought about living somewhere where color wouldn't exist, maybe in the north where there's just snow. Just white? Yes. One of my aims was to just move to an island where would, there would be no color. But even there, I'm sure it would be impossible because places like uh, Greenland, it's usually snow there, but the, the island is called Greenland as well. So after trying to run away from it, Neil decided to embrace it. Specifically, he went to art school. And on the first day, he walked right into the dean's office. And I said, hi, I don't see color. And he said, what the hell are you doing here then? Okay, so the school let him do all his art in black and white. But color kept coming back to him. It was like this elusive thing he couldn't crack. It became a mystery to me, color. It became a an invisible element that I just wanted to perceive. So I became obsessed with color. I just wanted to extend my senses and perceive color. And it was right around that time when Neil happened to attend a lecture by an expert on cybernetics. He was giving this talk about how we could use technology to extend our senses. 
and after the, the lecture, a young uh, guy approached me, and he was a little bit nervous, a little bit timid. This is the guy who gave that lecture. His name is Adam Montandon. Then he said, Adam, you're talking about changing the way that we see the world, but I don't see the world the same as everybody else. And that really got me interested. All right, so the thing to mention right here is that colors have frequencies, and Adam Montandon knew that. The question was, how do I translate colors into sound? I took a, a train ride back home after the lecture, and in the 20 minutes of the train ride, I had the very first ideas already in my head. The final result was this electronic eye that I've been wearing for almost 10 years now. It's attached to my head, and it allows me to hear color. All right, so to give you a sense of what Neil looks like, he has this, like, antenna that loops over his head, and attached to the end is a little camera, and that is what looks at and senses colors. Okay, so how does it work, and, and, like, can you take it off? No, it's permanently attached. And then it sends these frequencies to a chip that it installed at the back of my head, and then I hear the colors through bone conduction. So you are constantly hearing sounds. Like every time you turn your head, you're constantly hearing things. Yeah, I'm hearing the wall now here. And when I move my head, I hear the, yeah, and now I'm hearing the microphone. And everything sounds because there's color absolutely everywhere. And so Neil's obsession with extending his senses, it became a reality. Here's how he described it on the TED stage. So... Life has changed dramatically since I hear color, because color is almost everywhere. So biggest changes, for example, is uh, going to an art gallery. Uh, I can listen to a Picasso, for example. So it's like a, going to a concert hall, because I can listen to the paintings. And supermarkets, it's like going to a nightclub. It's full of different <laughs> melodies. Yeah. Especially the aisle with cleaning products. It's just fabulous. Also, the way I dress has changed. Before, I used to dress in a way that it looked good. Now, I dress in a way that it sounds good. <laughs> so, today, I'm dressed in C major. So, it's quite a happy chord. If I had to go to a funeral, though, I would dress in B minor, which would be uh, turquoise, purple, and orange. <laughs> also, the way I perceive beauty has changed, because when I look at someone, I hear their face. So someone might look very beautiful, but sound terrible. And it might happen the opposite, the other way around. So I really enjoy creating like sound portraits of people. Instead of drawing someone's uh, face, like drawing the shape, I point at them with the eye, and I write down the different notes I hear. And then I create sound portraits. Here's some faces. OK, so at this point in Neil's talk, he plays some sound portraits, first of Tom Cruise. Then there's Al Gore. He shows Prince Charles. And this is what Nicole Kidman sounds like. Yeah, Nicole Kidman sounds good. <laughs> some people, I would never relate, but they sound similar. Prince Charles has some similarities with Nicole Kidman. They have similar sound of eyes. So you relate people that you wouldn't relate. And, uh, you it's, it's amazing because it's not just that colors become sounds, but sounds that you hear are translated into color in your mind. Yeah, that's the secondary effect. So it slowly happened when I started to hear electronic sounds, I felt color. I heard a telephone tone and it, it felt green because it sounded just like the color green. The BBC beeps, uh, they sound turquoise. So I started to um, paint music and paint people's voices because people's voices have frequencies that I relate to color. When you transpose music to color, it's interesting to compare different artists. For example, Mozart used a lot of yellow 
which is in many of his pieces there's a lot of G notes uh, whereas Justin Bieber is very pink because there's lots of E's and also D's in his music so you realize that artists are using more or less the same colors when they compose I will never listen to Justin Bieber the same ever again. I will always think he sounds pink and very yellow. <laughs> What's your favorite color, by the way? Infrared. Infrared is uh, my favorite color. It's the lowest, and it's always in unexpected places. What, what does it sound like? It's very low. It's just... Mm, very, very low. It's actually very nice to hear. So I got to a point when I was able to perceive 360 colors, just like human vision. I was able to differentiate all the degrees of the color wheel. But then I just thought that this human vision was, wasn't good enough. It, there's many, many more colors around us that we cannot perceive but the electronic eyes can perceive. So I decided to continue extending my color senses and I added uh, infrared and I added ultraviolet to the color to sound scale. So now I can hear colors that the human eye cannot perceive. For example, perceiving infrared is good because you can actually detect if there's movement detectors in a room. I can hear if someone points at me with a remote control. And uh, the good thing about perceiving ultraviolet is that you can hear if it's a good day or a bad day to sunbathe. Because ultraviolet is a dangerous color, a color that can actually... So, so I read that you think of yourself as like, as like half human, half robot, like a cyborg. Yeah, I feel that I am technology. I don't feel that I'm wearing technology and I don't feel that I'm using technology. I feel that I am technology. I feel that the antenna is a part of my body, which is an unusual feeling, but that it makes sense when you've been wearing it for so long, your body just accepts this as a part of you. That's why two years ago, I created the Cyborg Foundation, which is a foundation that tries to help people become a cyborg, tries to encourage people to extend their senses by using technology as part of the body. We should all think that knowledge comes from our senses, so if we extend our senses, we will consequently extend our knowledge. So I do encourage you all to think about which senses you'd like to extend. I would encourage you to become a cyborg. You won't be alone. Thank you. <laughs> Neil Harbison, he calls himself the world's first cyborg. Check out his full talk at our website, ted.npr.org. And hey, if you're listening to the show on our website, we also recommend becoming a subscriber on iTunes. You'll get a different episode each week for free. It's easy. Search for TED Radio Hour in the iTunes store. And when you find our homepage, click subscribe. I'm Guy Raz. More ideas about stretching our senses in a moment here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First to Microsoft. Microsoft wants you to know that the newest member of the Microsoft Surface family, the Surface Pro 6, is now faster and more powerful than ever before. So you can get even more done, whether it's from your office or on your couch. Take the keyboard off and draw on it easily, or snap it back on and type on it like a laptop. With up to 13 and a half hours of battery life and the new 8th gen Intel Core processor, you can work how you want to for as long as you want to, wherever work takes you. Thanks also to Goldman Sachs for insights from leading thinkers on the state of markets, industries, and the global economy. Listen to their podcast, Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. You'll hear discussions on a variety of topics with far-reaching implications from venture capital fueling innovation to the global shift toward renewable energy. That's Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play, and at gs.com slash podcast.
Hi, this is Peter Sagal. For 20 years, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me has been making fun of the news with comedians and celebrity guests. We got silly limericks. We got terrible impressions. If you think the news is a joke, wait till you hear our show. New podcast episodes are available every Saturday. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, extrasensory how technology and even human behavior can actually stretch our senses. Hello, is that Todd? Yes, it is. Hi there. So this is Todd Kaiken. He's a doctor and a researcher who runs the Center for Bionic Medicine. So I'm sure you've been asked this question before like a hundred times, but I have to ask you this question. Because the, the first time I saw your TED Talk, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of Steve Austin. He's alive. He lost an arm, two legs, and one eye, but he's alive. I'm thinking, gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the capability to make the world's first bionic man. He's the man. <laughs> Do you remember what they said about him? I mean, they said Steve Austin will be that man better than he was before. Well, you know, I loved that show as a kid, and um, I think it's inspiring, and Lord knows we would uh, love to get there. I mean, we are kind of at this sort of bionic human place. Yes, we have, I believe, crossed a big hurdle by developing a way for a person to control their prosthetic limb. Um, that's not just, you know, goofy movements, um, unintuitive things. Uh, we've developed a system where a person thinks about what they want to do, and it happens. A system where someone with an artificial hand or arm just thinks about moving it and it happens. And Todd isn't actually focused on the robotic arm or hand alone, but his big idea is to literally rewire the human body to make those arms and hands work better. Instead of just making a machine for the human, we've changed the human to be able to use the machine better. What really amazed me was this, I, I mean, I'm, I'm moving my, like when I want to close my hand or, or bend my elbow, it's just intuitive, right? Like we don't, we're not thinking about that. You just do it. But, but these patients are literally thinking in their brains, bend elbow, move hand, and, and, and that happens. How does that happen? Well, um, think of the brain as where thought starts, right? That's where you first decide you want to move your hand. And... Even though you're not thinking about it, you send signals down your neck and you make the nerve fire. It has little electrical signals that hops down your nerve all the way to the end of the nerve where little chemicals go across to the muscle and make the muscle have a little electrical spark that hops down the muscle fibers, telling them to contract. And then your hand just closes like without even thinking about it. Yes. But what happens when you lose your arm above the elbow? Right. You don't have those muscles to move your hand anymore. That's right. You've lost not only the muscles and bones, but the controller. Okay, so here's where the rewiring comes in, right? Because you've lost those critical muscles that control your arm and your hand, but the nerve endings, they're still there. I could tap the end of a nerve of a World War II amputee, and they'd still feel their missing hand. Hmm. So they're alive, and they, they work. They're like the data cables. So the nerve endings and the nerve signals are still there, right? But without those muscles, it's really hard to figure out what those nerve signals are actually saying. The signals are really, really, really tiny, and you have to listen to a single nerve fiber at a time. Can't we plug them in someplace better? A place that might be able to amplify those nerve signals and then rewire those nerves to other muscles. Todd explains how this can be done on the TED stage. We're using a biological amplifier to amplify these nerve signals. Muscles. Muscles will amplify the nerve signals about a thousandfold so that we can record them from on top of the skin. So our approach is something we call targeted reinnervation. Imagine with somebody who's lost their whole arm, we still have four major nerves that go down your arm, and we take the nerve away from your chest muscle and let these nerves grow into it. Now you think close hand and a little section of your chest contracts. You think bend elbow, a different section contracts. And we can use electrodes or antennas to pick that up and tell the arm to move. That's the idea. This is just unbelievable. I mean, you can go into the body and basically say, 
like we're going to attach this nerve to that nerve and that nerve to this muscle. It's, it's like it's like you're tricking the brain into into like thinking a hand is there. Well, you know, frankly, I'm an engineer, and they wouldn't let me rewire people. <laughs> it was really sad. So my colleague Greg Demonian at Northwestern is a talented surgeon, and he goes in there um, and finds the right nerves. Um, and the ends of them, and then we redirect them to where we have spare muscle. Uh, I guess the analogy I use is that the nerve is a wire, and we've lost the, the phone at one end, and so we just take the wire and hook it up to a different phone so that we can talk. And that's exactly how it works. A computerized prosthetic arm can pick up the nerve signals and then tell the prosthetic hand to open or close. So for example, Todd did this with a patient of his, Amanda Kitts, who also joined him on the TED stage. So Amanda, would you please tell us how you lost your arm? Sure, in 2006, I had a car accident and I was driving home from work and a truck was coming the opposite direction, came over into my lane, ran over the top of my car and his axle tore my arm off. After that, I woke up in the ICU I didn't know what had happened, and when I realized, you know, that I'd lost my arm, you know, it was completely torn up. I couldn't stop crying for days. With Amanda, um, she lost her arm uh, a couple inches above the elbow, so she had a nice long residual limb, if you will. And that is the place where Todd's team rewired Amanda's nerves. And we can take the biceps, which has two parts, leave one alone to do the biceps control of an elbow, but take the other one and put a hand-closing nerve into it. And when that nerve grows in, you think, close your hand. You aren't thinking, bend your biceps or contract your biceps. You're thinking, close my hand. But we've rerouted the nerve, the wire, to a different amplifier. And then that's when it was like magic after that. I could just open my hand and the hand would open. I didn't have to use any funny movements to, to work the arm. So it became like, you know, a natural part of me. And Todd, he was delighted, but he wanted to take it just a step further. So he started to think more about the nerve. The nerve actually controls each of your fingers, your thumb, your wrist. Now my colleagues have developed computer uh, decoding algorithms that are a lot like voice recognition. And so we listen to the signals from the muscle and these computer programs decode it so that we can tell whether you want to close your hand, bend your wrist, turn your wrist, or even what type of hand grasp pattern you want to make. So I have the elbow that goes up and down. I have the wrist rotation that goes, <laughs> and it can go all the way around. And I have the wrist flexion and extension. At this moment where everybody laughs, she's just turned her entire wrist 360 degrees. Yeah, well, that's quite a bar trick for you because <laughs> you give a, somebody something they can do and they will use it. So sometimes that's functional because you can flip it into a position that isn't even humanoid. And the thing about rewiring those nerves is that when you do that, it means that prosthetic hands are actually getting a lot closer than ever before to a real human hand. Because the nerves, they can still feel and touch. I want you to watch closely. Ooh. That's Claudia, and that was the first time she got to feel sensation through a prosthetic. She had a little sensor at the end of her prosthesis that then she rubbed over different surfaces and she could feel different textures of sandpaper, different grits, ribbon cable, as it pushed on her re-innervated hand skin. Um, she said that when she just ran it across the table, it felt like her finger was rocking. It was one of those um, scientific surprises. In those nerves to your hand, actually two-thirds of them are for sensation. Only one-third are for controlling muscles. Hmm. So there's thousands and thousands of nerves that are trying to grow out into something, and most of them are sensation, and they grew into any little sensory end organ they could. So earlier in the show, we, we, we spoke to Neil Harbison, who, who calls himself a cyborg, right? I mean, his antenna is literally screwed into the bone of his skull. And I wonder if that's the sort of the direction we're headed with, with sort of bionic technology. I mean, could you imagine half human, half machines, 
who can function normally despite having been born with disabilities or limitations? Well, I certainly imagine, and, and we're progressing to having machines help people with disabilities and on even more and more intimate ways. Um, as far as half human, half machine, I take challenge to that because the essence of human is in our minds and what we think and what we do. And, and I don't see that ever being replaced. I hope we have things to augment, um, but I don't ever feel my humanity is going to be integrated with any form of machine. I was thinking about this idea of like energy that that travels through our body and that energy travels from person to person. Like when I hold my, my son's hand, you know, there's, there's that feeling of holding a, a kid's hand, you know? And I wonder if, if you could ever replicate that in a prosthetic hand. Wow, that's, um, that's a tough, that's an exciting one. And, and the question is how much do you get from having it being your own hand? So let me put it this way. Something is always better than nothing. So you're holding your son's hand with a very rich sensory normal hand and you get all of these delicate feelings. But for a man with no hands, no arms, if we put a sensor in the prosthesis so that as he touches that child's hand and it's nothing more than a little squeeze that he feels, but yet it's his squeeze and it's his kid's hand. So perhaps the fidelity of the feeling is not near as important as the identity of the feeling and the fact that it's my hand that is touching something and gosh, that's my kid. Todd Kaiken runs the Center for Bionic Medicine at the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago. You can watch his amazing full talk at ted.npr.org. Where did we come from? What is the future of the human race? Are we alone in the universe? So this is a voice you probably know, physicist Stephen Hawking, of course, but the weird thing about this voice is that it's not just his voice. This is the exact same computerized voice that's used by thousands of people around the world who cannot speak on their own. And we know this as Stephen Hawking because, well, he's Stephen Hawking. But there's little girls and, and older women and, and lots of other people who are using that voice, mm. even though he thinks of that as being his voice. Right? And, and so do the other people who are using those voices. They think about them as being their voice. This is Rupal Patel. I'm a speech scientist um, and a professor at Northeastern University. And Rupal has figured out a way to create new voices, customized voices, for people who use synthetic speech, people whose actual voices, for whatever reason, autism or cerebral palsy or stroke, can't speak. And the story of how it all came about, Rupal explains from the TED stage. This lack of individuation of the synthetic voice really hit home when I was at an assistive technology conference a few years ago. And I recall seeing a little girl and a grown man having a conversation using their devices. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Different devices. How long have you been coming to this conference? But the same voice. This is my first year. I looked around and I saw this happening all around me. I've never been there. Where is the registration table? What time should we meet back at the hotel? Voices that didn't fit their bodies right or their here. personalities. Where are you staying? How long are you in town? We wouldn't dream of fitting a little girl with the prosthetic limb of a grown man. So why then the same prosthetic voice? It really struck me, and I wanted to do something about this. I'm going to play you now a sample of two people, actually, who have severe speech disorder. They're saying the same utterance. You probably didn't understand what they said, but I hope that you heard their unique vocal identities. 
wanted to find out how we could harness these residual vocal abilities and build a technology that could be customized for them, voices that could be customized for them. So we decided to do exactly that. With a girl named Samantha. And Samantha has a very rare speech disorder, which makes it impossible for her to speak. But she can make sounds, vowel-like sounds, which turned out to be enough of a sample for Rupal and her team of researchers. Uh... That sound is just what Samantha can produce. That's her ah. And from that, we can gather the pitch of her voice. The quality of her voice, um, meaning things like, is it raspy? Is it breathy? So you are hearing all the things. I mean, she can't create words or sentences, but she can make some basic sounds. Right. And we take what we can from those vocalizations and use them in the process where we generate a voice for her that sounds like her. So how do you go about building this voice? Well, you have to find someone who's willing to be a surrogate. For Samantha, her surrogate came from somewhere in the Midwest, a stranger who gave her the gift of voice. Being a surrogate donor only requires you to say a few hundred to a few thousand utterances. The process goes something like this. Things happen in pairs. I love to sleep. The sky is blue without clouds. Now, she's going to go on like this for about three to four hours. The idea is to cover all the different combinations of the sounds that occur in the language. From this voice bank, we can now say any new utterance, like, I love chocolate. Everyone needs to be able to say that. (laughs) Fish through that database and find all the segments necessary to say that utterance. I love chocolate. What happens next is best described by my daughter's analogy. She's six. She calls it, Mixing colors to paint voices. It's exactly that. Samantha's voice is like a concentrated sample of red food dye, which we can infuse into the recordings of her surrogate to get a pink voice. Uh... So now Samantha can say this. This voice sounds like the real me. I helped make my new voice. I can't wait to use my new voice with my friends. That's incredible. I'm so glad you think that's incredible <laughs> because, you know, um, as a scientist, so, so many times, I mean, there's been so many versions of that process. And um, even if they're not perfect, even if they have crackliness to the voice, even if they're not absolutely perfect in terms of uh, speech quality, they're made with a little bit of them. And that is such a powerful thing. So for Samantha, when she heard her voice, there's this this smile that spread across her face when she heard it for the first time. What I love about that is it's it's not her jumping up and down and saying, you know, yeah, this is my voice. It's it's this sort of slow realization that this is who I am. Speech scientist Rupal Patel, in a moment, we'll hear more about her research and another young girl who just got a brand new non-Stephen Hawking-like voice. I'm Guy Raz. Stay with us. You're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. First, to Slack, a collaboration hub for work, whatever work you do. With Slack, the right people in your team are kept in the loop, and the information they need is always at their fingertips. Teamwork on Slack happens in channels, letting you organize conversations and information around projects, offices, and teams. And because everything you need to work is in one place, it's faster and easier to get things done. With Slack, your team is better connected. Find out more at slack.com. Thanks also to Royal Caribbean, who invites you to discover that adventure doesn't happen if you just go along for the ride. With Royal Caribbean, you can tell gravity to take a flying leap as you skydive at sea, take a new culinary world tour on board every night, and discover different island destinations all in one trip. 
why just vacation in the Caribbean when you can go on an adventure with Royal Caribbean? Come seek at royalcaribbean.com. Ships Registry, Bahamas. This is Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We do long-form interviews with the people behind the best books, pop culture, journalism, and more, so you can get to know the people whose work you love. You'll find Fresh Air on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, extrasensory technology and behavior that can actually stretch our senses. And we were just talking with speech scientist Rupal Patel, who designs devices for people who can't speak because she wants them to sound more like humans, like themselves, rather than robots. Many times people who have these communication devices don't use their devices that often. And that's, you know, that's terrible because it kind of closes the world for them. I hope that this technology opens the door for them. My name is Shannon. And how old are you? I'm 13 years old. This is Shannon Ward, and she was born with cerebral palsy. And a few months ago, Rupal essentially gave Shannon her own voice. And she built it on the vowel-like sounds that Shannon is able to make. Yes. I think everyone deserves to be heard. So, Shannon, like, the voice you had before, the one you have now, did you like it? Message window. It's not so much. So tell me about your new voice. Totally love it. Does it feel like it's you? That's a big fatty yes. (laughs) (laughs) To hear it, I was just stunned because I can hear my daughter, especially in certain words. This is Shannon's mom, Janine. And when she says mom in particular, I hear her. And that is a wonderful thing for any parent to experience. Does she seem like it's changed her? Absolutely. It just increased her confidence. It increased her desire to want to use her device. Um, I know personally that she loves to talk with her friends more. She stands out. And I think people take her differently when they hear a voice that sounds like a 13-year-old girl as opposed to a voice that sounds like a robot of an adult. Okay, you have a 13-year-old daughter. She is now a teenager. If she's talking more, is she arguing more with you? Absolutely. I know it might sound so bizarre, but there are times I'm like, can we unplug the device for a little bit? (laughs) (laughs) Because I have a kid that does not stop. So back to Rupal Patel, the speech scientist who started all of this. She's trying to get people all over the world to become voice donors to help people like Shannon. Yeah. And I think the the beautiful thing about this is that as someone grows, what we'd like to see is that many people who use augmentative communication devices, these communication aids, use the same voice for much of their life. But you and I don't have the same voice today as we had a decade ago and and a decade before that, certainly. It's layers and layers of experiences and changes in our body that change our voice. That should be afforded to these individuals as well. What I want to share with you next is how I envision taking this work to that next level. I imagine a whole world of surrogate donors from all walks of life, different sizes, different ages, coming together in this voice drive to give people voices that are as colorful as their personalities. About five years ago, we built our very first voice for a little boy named William. When his mom first heard this voice, she said, this is what William would have sounded like had he been able to speak. Then I saw William typing a message on his device. I wondered, what was he thinking? Imagine carrying around someone else's voice for nine years and finally finding your own voice. Imagine that. This is what William said. Never heard me before. 
Thank you. Rupal Patel is a speech scientist at Northeastern University. She and her collaborator, Tim Bunnell, started a project where almost anyone can donate their voice to people like Shannon and Samantha. And you can do it, too. If you want to help out, go to vocalid.org and give them some of your voice. And, of course, you can watch Rupal's full talk at TED.com. So, so far we've been talking about how technology can stretch human senses, right? But what if you don't need that technology? And what if you aren't using your senses to their fullest potential without even knowing about it? Well, that, that's Julian Treasure's big idea. Julian studies sound. I'm totally obsessed with sound. It's my life. But do you know something? I think, Guy, that most people are secretly fascinated by sound. Really? Yeah, we've just got used over the last 200 years to suppressing sound because of the... <laughs> noise. I mean, there's so much noise pollution now. And we've just got into the habit of suppressing our, our sense of hearing. So a big part of my mission in life is to get people listening consciously. Julian's idea is that sound affects your life in a bunch of ways you never even think about. But the flip side of that idea is that becoming aware of sound and really listening, it can actually make our lives a little better. For instance, a couple years ago, the city of Lancaster in California was trying to figure out how to keep petty criminals from doing things like stealing purses and harassing shoppers on the main drag. And city officials tried all kinds of crime prevention techniques, but no luck. So they called Julian, and he installed... Hundreds of uh, all-weather Bose loudspeakers in the main street called the Boulevard. And those speakers played this soundscape for five hours a day. And... Uh, what happened, according to the sheriff of Lancaster, California, is that crime fell 15% after 15% that soundscape. 15% after that yep. soundscape came on. Yep. And they absolutely love it. And I mean, come on, there's no way this is not bringing your heart rate down a little bit, right? I mean, you've got a little gentle surf in there. The surf, incidentally, that kind of gentle surf has a cadence of roughly 12 cycles per minute, which is very similar to the breathing of a sleeping human being. And so we find it a very restful sound. And the birds? Just because we've evolved to it over 250,000 years, it's the sound of security, because when the birds are singing, generally things are okay. If they suddenly stop, you need to be worrying. You know, at this point, somebody out there will be thinking manipulation. Because that's the word that I always encounter when I start talking about designing soundscapes. Right. And the answer I give to that is, do you feel manipulated by architecture? Do you feel manipulated by color? Do you feel manipulated by street layout? Because you are being changed by those things. They are consciously designed. So why would we start to think we're being manipulative the moment we start to design soundscapes? And what Julian argues is that listening is the most undervalued sense we have. But our ability to listen, to really listen, it's slipping away. Here's his TED Talk. We are losing our listening. We spend roughly 60% of our communication time listening, but we're not very good at it. We retain just 25% of what we hear. Now, not you, not this talk, but that is generally true. <laughs> Let's define listening as making meaning from sound. It's a mental process, and it's a process of extraction. We use some pretty cool techniques to do this. One of them is pattern recognition. So in a cocktail party like this, if I say, David, Sarah, pay attention, some of you just sat up. We recognize patterns to distinguish noise from signal, and especially our name. Differencing is another technique we use. If I left this pink noise on for more than a couple of minutes, you would literally cease to hear it. We listen to differences. We discount sounds that remain the same. I said at the beginning, we're losing our listening. This is not trivial. Because listening 
is our access to understanding. Conscious listening always creates understanding. A world where we don't listen to each other at all is a very scary place indeed. And Julian Treasure thinks there are all kinds of things getting in the way of our listening. Just think about all the sounds around you every day. In Europe, where Julian does most of his work... Something like 8 million people having their sleep seriously disturbed by traffic noise at night. And a lot of the people ride the subway every day, including Julian. And I wear hearing, uh, hearing protectors uh, every hearing time I can. Every time you go. Yeah. Wow. And I'm, I'm shocked every day. I see people standing on the, the tube station mm. as this screech is happening at 110, 120 decibels, and they're just standing there. And once you get to work, well... Researchers have actually tested people in these noisy, open-plan office environments. And they found that productivity dropped by two-thirds. Wow. 66% drop in productivity in open-plan office In open-plan offices. The bosses, of course, are all in hermetically sealed offices, so they're not even mm-hmm. aware that this is a problem. Yeah. But there's a lot of research now showing that noise and the lack of quiet working space is one of the biggest issues for all office workers. What does it do to people? It creates stress hormones. Uh, increases your risk of heart attack, it increases your risk of stroke, and there's a whole range of other issues, sexual dysfunction, bowel dysfunction, uh, depression, psychological disorders, which are associated with living in noisy situations day in and day out. Okay, so that's the environmental stuff that Julian says is making it harder for us to listen, but there are also things inside our own heads that get in the way. So, for example, you might notice that sometimes, you know, when you get a group of people together, right, the conversation isn't really a conversation. Um, people don't often ask other people questions. They, they don't, and they don't really listen. Hmm. They just sort of take turns telling stories about themselves. Yes, I call that speech writing, and uh, it, it, it's not really listening. You know, the, if you're, while the other person's talking, if that's just a sort of gap while you're writing your next bon mot. In your, in your mind. Exactly. Uh, that's not actually listening to somebody. And listening takes brain power. There are studies that show that the human brain can only understand 1.6 conversations at a time, which is enough for one person and a little bit of your inner monologue. That's the amount of auditory bandwidth we have. And if you're in an office where you can overhear one person talking right next to you, they're taking up one of your 1.6. We don't have any ear lids. And unless you put headphones on and listen to that person's conversation is inevitably going to be decoded in your brain because we're programmed to decode conversation. And the way we listen might also be hardwired, depending on our gender. Men tend to listen in what I call a reductive way, which is to say uh, for a point, for a solution. You know, we like to have a problem and solve it. Bang, thank you very much. On to the next thing. Yeah. Women tend, on the other hand, to listen in more of an expansive way. It's not about a point. It's not about a solution. It's just about going with the flow and being with the person and listening and enjoying the journey with them. So you get this mismatch where she comes home and says, I've had a terrible day, darling. It's been absolutely awful. This happened, that happened. And he says, have a bath, you'll be fine. So I think the two listenings are quite different. And when we become conscious of our filters, then we can start to play with them and change our listening position. And that is a very, very powerful thing to do. So I'd like to share with you exercises, tools you can take away with you to improve your own conscious listening. Would you like that? Good. The first one is silence. Just three minutes a day of silence is a wonderful exercise to reset your ears and to recalibrate so that you can hear the quiet again. If you can't get absolute silence, go for quiet. That's absolutely fine. Second, I call this the mixer. So even if you're in a noisy environment like this, and we all spend a lot of time in places like this, listen in the coffee bar to how many channels of sound can I hear? How many individual channels in that mix am I listening to? You can do it in a beautiful place as well, like a a lake. How many birds am I hearing? Where are they? Where are those ripples? It's a great exercise for improving the quality of your listening. And finally, an acronym. The acronym is RASA which is the Sanskrit word for juice, 
or essence. And rasa stands for receive, which means pay attention to the person, appreciate, making little noises like, hmm, oh, okay. Summarize, the word so is very important in communication, and ask, ask questions afterwards. Uh, I love that. I mean, that because this is what I do, right? I talk to people mm. uh, and I ask them questions and I listen to them. Absolutely. And I, I love doing it. It's, it's a real gift that I get to, to have. Do you know, I, I often think that listening is the most generous gift you can give to another human being. And many people have never had that experience. Yeah. I often have said to my teenage children as they're looking down, doing something on their phone and they're saying, I am listening. I say, <laughs> no, that's not listening. Well, when you think about it, we've got four ways of communicating, reading, writing, speaking, listening. We spend all our time teaching reading and writing. We spend absolutely no time at all in most schools teaching either speaking or, more importantly still, listening. And if we can teach listening in our schools, we can take our listening off that slippery slope to that dangerous, scary world that I talked about and move it to a place where everybody is consciously listening all the time, or at least capable of doing it. Now, sound is my passion, it's my life. I wrote a whole book about it, so I live to listen. That's too much to ask for most people. But I believe that every human being needs to listen consciously in order to live fully connected in space and in time to the physical world around us, connected in understanding to each other, not to mention spiritually connected, because every spiritual path I know of has listening and contemplation at its heart. So I invite you to connect with me, connect with each other, take this mission out, and let's get listening taught in schools and transform the world in one generation to a conscious listening world, a world of connection, a world of understanding, and a world of peace. Thank you for listening to me today. Julian Treasurer is the chairman of the Sound Agency. He's got four TED Talks, all of them pretty spectacular, and all of them at TED.com. They say that I've lost all good sense, but don't believe it's true. I couldn't see, hear, smell, or feel before I was seeing you. Now I'm feeling things I've never felt, and my sight has been restored. I'm using all my senses like I've never used before. I'm Hey, thanks for listening to this episode, Extra Sensory. If you missed any of it, or you want to hear more, or you want to find out more about who is on it, you can visit ted.npr.org. You can also find many more TED Talks at ted.com, and you can download this show through iTunes or through the NPR smartphone app. Our program was produced by Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, and Sanaz Meshkinpour with help from Portia Robertson-Migas, Eric Newsom, and Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Rund Abdel Fattah. Thanks to our partners at TED, Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz. You've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.